Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to my show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm your host, Bianca Murray. Today's guest edits commercial fiction and narrative nonfiction for Putnam, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House in the US. He works with authors Max Barry, CJ Box, Brian Christie, Clive Cussler, Jeffrey Deaver, Karen Dion, Frederick Forsyth, and Lisa Gardner, among others. He has edited numerous New York Times bestsellers, an Edgar Award winner, a winner of the Penn ESPN Award for Literary Sports Writing, and a runner-up for the Pulitzer Prize in History. Mark, how lovely to have you on the podcast today. We met once before in Toronto when you were out with Putnam for a big event, and it was a joy to meet you then. And thank you for taking the time to join me today. Bianca, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was a joy to meet you in your hometown, and now we get to speak here. And I think your ears must have been burning a few weeks back when we had Karen Dion on the podcast. She's just so knowledgeable. There's so much value that she added to discussions that we had on Backstory, and she was singing your praises, especially then telling us how much you taught her in the process of her redrafting, revising her novel, The Marsh King's Daughter. Karen is fantastic. She and I knew each other because she's been so involved in the industry for such a long time. We knew each other for years and then we got the chance to work together. And, you know, it's like marrying your best friend. You know, like you finally get to like, you have all this kind of um, time together that that builds trust and then you get to use it um, while working on two books together. It was fantastic. Absolutely. And I even would go so far as to say that I think that a writer in the editor 
it's a need to have a certain kind of chemistry. You know, they need to get each other. They need to understand each other and almost feed off each other's energy to really make a book come to life. And wherever you see that between a writer and an editor, I believe you see it in the work as well, because that chemistry comes through in the work as well. And that was one of my favorite books. Oh, well, thank you. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, when I When I'm interested in acquiring a book, one of the things I like to do before making an offer is when I talk to the author, I like to mention the things that I think need work. And it's not, you know, obviously I think the book's really great. That's why I'm offering. But I feel like it's really important for me to say, now here are the things that I think we could work on together because if the author says yes, and then we're going to be great, right? And if the author says, oh, I don't think so, that's fine. But I start to think, maybe I'm not, you know, my vision for the book might not mesh with theirs and that's not where we want to be. So I, I agree with you. There's a wonderful thing that happens when an author and an editor are on the same page. And when it's not there, my guess is in some way it shows up on the manuscript. Right. And I love what you said now about yes and. It's a kind of literary improv, right? Because you're bouncing these things off of each other and it's like, yes, and that's awesome. But how about this as well? So the magic happens there for me as as a writer. Definitely. I've had, I've had plenty of authors say, your suggestion's stinks, but but you're right about the problem. And I'm like, great. As long as you can fix it, I'm happy. There's this theory in writing that they always tell you, if somebody tells you there's a problem with your work, then believe them and trust them. But if they tell you how to fix it, you shouldn't believe them. And I believe the complete opposite. I'm like, bring me solutions. If you can say this is what's wrong with it and this is how to fix it, I will be forever indebted to you. So I'm not quite sure why people don't like being told kind of how to fix it. I'm not sure they're why writers get so prickly about that. I've seen I've seen it go both ways. I have definitely seen the authors who are very good at receiving analysis of what's wrong with their book, but they'd rather fix it themselves. And I've seen those authors who say, great, I hear you. Now what? What do I do? So I teach a class at NYU where I'm helping, um, where I'm teaching students who hope to become editors. And one of the things I tell them is that, in my opinion, an editor's superpower is that you can read something, you can know if it works or it doesn't, and then you can say why. Everybody who watches a movie or reads a book can say, I didn't like it, right? And they, they could have great taste. They could be absolutely right. But if they can't say, and here are the 10 reasons why I did or didn't, then they shouldn't be an editor. And an editor's job is to really say, okay, I have a good impression or a, or a bad impression or uh, somewhere in between. And here's why. And that's what's going to allow a writer to work. Now, I think it's a bonus if an editor can come up with some good ideas about how you might attack it. But I do think there are going to be plenty of authors who say, I don't want to hand over the reins. I just want you to tell me what I need to do. I can work either way as long as an author is joined with me and trying to get to the best possible solution. Yeah. And the objectivity that editors bring, this for me is something, that's why I love the author-editor relationship. Because once you've been mired in something for a year to two years and you've just kind of been rewriting it and slogging through drafts, you lose sight of everything. I mean, you you haven't even forgotten what you did 10 versions ago and now you're trying to come to grips with what you're doing in this version. And so, you know, the point at which you're able to hand it across to an editor and go, I know it isn't perfect. I know it's problematic, but I'm not quite sure where I'm stuffing this up. And it would be really great if you could kind of look at it objectively and, and come back to me with those notes, because you are seeing it way more clearly than I'm seeing it at this point in time. Yeah. And I, I think one of the funniest problems, not funny meaning that it's humorous, but it's it's baffling, it's perplexing. One of the things that happens to fiction writers is they'll create something and then later they'll find themselves trapped by it. And they'll be like, well, I can't change that because she's 17. You're like, 
She doesn't exist. So if you need her to be 21, guess what? She can be 21. And it happens all the time where timeline questions, certainly character issues, setting questions, people, writers find themselves trapped by something they've created. And sometimes it takes an editor to say, but it it doesn't have to be that way. So let's take a step back and think about how we would have done it if we now knew this was the goal. I agree. When an editor is at their best, they can care about the book, not not the same as an author, but but in that kind of way. And yet they can kind of see it with fresh eyes and say, okay, I was thinking it was going to be like this. So let's see if we can get back more towards that, right? But the other great thing that can happen is that an, an editor can think a book is going to be one thing at the outset. And the author can absolutely blow the editor's mind. And then the editor has to adjust and be like, ah, I thought it was going to be this, but you come up with something and I want to keep going with that. Like you're doing, you know, it's becoming something more interesting. So that, that can happen sometimes too. Those light bulb moments are amazing when an editor goes, but they don't have to be 17. They can be 21 because this is the thing. We spend so much time with these characters and they become so real to us. And we forget that we are essentially making shit up. That is what we are doing. And so we feel like we've, you know, oh, we can't do that because this person's only this age, or we can't do that because this person wouldn't do that. And then you have somebody objectively go, but why can't they be 21? And you sit there with your jaw dropping and you're like, I actually don't know why they can't be 21. Why did I make them 21? It would have been so much easier. Yeah. Because they become real to you. Right. And it's hard, it's hard to break that spell. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mark, today we're concentrating on the craft of writing more than the business side of writing. And something that we would like to talk about is suspense in writing. Firstly, we're going to have a look at what is suspense. So we make sure that we're all on the same page. And then we're going to look at what tools does the writer have at their disposal in order to create suspense. And for those of you listening, we're not just talking about, let's say, mystery or suspense novels or, or thriller novels or anything like that. I mean, we could focus on that definitely, but we are speaking about creating suspense in all kinds of genres, in all kinds of fiction, whether they be literary novels, whether they romances, uh, fantasy novels, we'll definitely want to be including elements of suspense as well. So Mark, what is suspense? So suspense to me is the creation of anticipation. And the way that you do that is that you introduce to the reader a question that they want answered, and then you withhold that answer for as long as you can. But one of the things that I think is fascinating about suspense and fiction, and as you said, not just um, mysteries or thrillers, which I do work on a lot, but any story we read, we want there to be suspense. That's what keeps us reading. But here's what I think is so interesting about it in fiction. I edit nonfiction as well. And when somebody writes a nonfiction narrative, their job, I think, is to reveal suspense, not to generate it, right? If you're writing about a true crime story or a historical incident, the suspense should be inherent in the story you're telling. And it's your job to write it so that it is revealed. But when you're writing fiction, it is actually incumbent on you to create out of thin air suspense. And it, it is a miracle that we can do this to each other. You know, the, the, the kind of campfire tale where you're making it up as you go and you the, the person next to you is leaning forward on the log, listening to you, right? There was a, a nonfiction book that was a huge hit not too long ago, uh, Sapiens. And when I read that book, uh, Harari spoke about something I thought was really fascinating, which was these interrelated beliefs. So basically things that don't actually exist, and yet we all agree they do. And you can think of examples. Government, for example, is a kind of a, an agreed upon thing. It, it doesn't, it's not like a piece of wood. We put it together by agreeing to believe in it. Even money. It's not that the, you know, the cloth or the, 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 the metal that we make money out of is what we're interested in. It's the currency. It's what we agree it's worth right? And fiction is like this. 
we literally agree to believe something that we know is a lie and then we let it work on us and we let it affect us. And so I think the great tool in any kind of, uh, in any fiction is suspense. And it can be of completely varying sorts. Like you said, it could come out of suspense, it could come out of romance, it could come out of science fiction, literary fiction, historical fiction. It could come from any of these sources. Uh, my wife and I have become devotees of the crown and you know in broad scope what's going to happen. And yet you're really, you know, could we watch one more? How late is it? So I think that that's the magic of suspense. And so as an editor, and then also as a, as a professor at NYU, a few years ago kind of sat down and was like, okay, so if this is the thing, if this is a, a fiction writer's currency, what levers are there that are, a writer can play with to increase suspense? First to create it, and then to increase it. We all know it when we see it, but sometimes my job is to help a writer pinpoint something make a very specific decision to increase suspense. So I started, I sat down and tried to figure out what are some of the tools. I kind of came up with a list of things that, that are available that are that a writer can actually consciously play with. Wonderful, because so many things with writing, I find come with time and experience. And I know that in the beginning, I made stupid mistakes in terms of revealing something integral too early, therefore taking out all the suspense, etc. So I say to my students that a lot of this will come to you with time and experience and you'll get an instinct for it. But it's so much more helpful if you are able to say, but these are the tools that you can unpack and be conscious of now while you are building that skill set to get to the point where you're feeling these kinds of things instinctively. So let's begin. Where would you begin? So fittingly, I start with the starting point. I think it's really vital that a novel start in the right place to be as effective as possible. And so my basic belief about the starting point of a novel is that a novel should start as late as possible, but not too late. And so what I mean there is that you should push the starting point back as late as you can until you hit that point at which the story is damaged by the fact that you're starting so late. If you have to do too much work through flashbacks, for example, then you've probably started too late, right? We needed more. Most books would be hindered by being too freighted with the backstory. But if you uh, start a novel too early, then you're going to have this feeling of a long runway up to when things actually get interesting. And none of us want that. I mean, even if you're reading a, a large novel, a serious novel, a deep novel, any of these things, you still want to get into the story at some point soon. So I think it's really important for a writer to figure out the ideal starting point for their story. And I don't always think they know it in the first draft. And I think that's okay. I think it's really okay if a writer starts a story one way then they start to figure out, oh no, it's kind of, this is more the plot. Really, it's, it starts here. And then later they could go back and be like, ah, now I don't really need this or that. But however it works, I think that's the first thing. And as an editor, I'm very conscious of, did this story that I just read that I'm, I'm helping to edit, did it start at the right place? And if not, can we move it back a little bit? Right. And just on that, um, something that beginner writers get nervous about is they feel like the reader needs to know all kinds of things about the character in order to be invested in the action as it begins. And sometimes not knowing a lot of things about the character could help in creating that suspense we're talking about. Because if we're thrown straight into the action and we see this character, whatever it is, ending their marriage, running away from bullets, whatever the case may be is we hit the ground running with them and we are swept along because of course you don't need to know about somebody's childhood to care that somebody is shooting at them. We can put ourselves in that place and we can go, this is terrible and we get swept along. Uh, but sometimes not knowing why they've ended up in that predicament in the first place is a great way to create suspense. Absolutely. I think, I think that 
it's not that you have to necessarily start a novel in media res. So like, it doesn't have to be like, you know, three bullets have already been fired and four more to come. But I do think you're right that we're naturally inclined to sympathize with the character we're given, right? That's our, that's our natural want. And of course that could be undone by a writer's choices, but, but that's how we want to be. So you can kind of bank on the reader being sympathetic to that character, even if they don't know all that much about them. But the other thing I think is that most great writers have a talent for building a character with extreme efficiency, just a handful of details, and we've got it. You know, if a character is in the middle of some hectic business meeting, some high stakes business meeting, but there's a flash in their mind about got to pick their daughter up at 4.30, boom, you've just learned so much about how their life works and how much they care and this and that. But And you could do it in... A hundred different ways, but I think great writers figure out ways to do it, to give us that character in as little time as possible. So the sympathy is there. We care about them and we're invested in them, but we also haven't spent a lot of time that feels unrelated to the plot getting to know them. Definitely. Okay. Next step. Next step is the stakes. So there is um, something we talk about much in the industry, and I assume writers think about it. There may be, maybe it's more of an editorial thing than a writer thing, but we think about high concept versus low concept. And one of the defining traits of a high concept story is that the stakes are very high. But even in a more, even in a more quiet story, it still matters that something that matters is at stake. I think we've all had that feeling of getting to the end of a novel and, or, or even a, a film or a play and feeling like, oh, hmm. That was it, huh? It's not a great feeling because you've given your time and your uh, your empathy to these characters. When you get to the end, you want to feel that something meaningful happened. And if that is that the world has been saved from aliens, okay. If it is that mother and daughter have reunited, okay, right? What matters is that you have shown us why this matters. And I think sometimes when a writer's struggling, not so much with the writing, it can happen that way, but even more with an outline, like the beginning stages, and they're like, I don't know, it's not coming together. I think if they're having trouble knowing why a reader would care, why a reader would invest, if they're having trouble saying why it is, then there might be a problem there. I think it really matters that stories matter on some level where the reader will feel rewarded for having spent the time. An early check for an editor, you know, which I, I think could apply for a writer as well, is that you actually think to yourself, okay, what is actually at stake here? Okay, got it, check. Or, hmm, not really sure that's enough uh, to justify the story. Right, and that's a mistake that I make even now. I came up with an idea recently and character comes to me first. Plot, etc., comes so much later and I just fall in love with these characters and then I start writing it and I'm, <laughs> I promise you, I'll be 30 pages in and I'll be, but hold on, what's at stake for these characters? And this is why it's feeling so flat because there's none of this, this tension, there's nothing at stake, there's nothing, you know, we get told early on that each of your characters needs to be given something that they desperately, desperately want and they need to spend a lot of the novel trying desperately to get this thing and it's your job as the writer to throw as many obstacles at them as possible thereby upping the stakes all the time and the importance of them getting this thing becomes that much more important and we sometimes love our characters so much we forget to give them something that they desperately want and to up those stakes as well you just brought up a point that i think is one of the the hardest to kind of grapple with in a way which is the question of active versus passive characters you're you're 
you're you're talking about the idea of a character wants something, but this is in her way, and this is in her way, and this is in her way. So how is she going to do it? And that's of course that's a great beginning for a story. But I wonder often about the passive character and if it how it can work because I know it can. I've certainly read novels where a more passive character still makes for a good protagonist. But I think it's a fascinating thing. Say you're starting with a character who doesn't want something per se, but their life has become disrupted by something that's acting on them. Can the novel still work? I feel it can, but I say that knowing that it's harder to build. It's a healthier starting point to say a character wants something and they can't have it, at least not yet. And it's harder to say this character doesn't want anything, but life has acted on this character. Now the character must react. So I still think that can work, but I think it demands more of the writer. And I think the writer should be aware at the outset if they're choosing a passive character, because I think it comes with some important challenges that they're going to have to address head on. And in terms of that as well, I mean, that ties to character arc, because essentially who your character is at the end of the novel should be quite different to who they are at the beginning of the novel. Otherwise, you haven't really taken the reader on a journey in which the character learns and grows and changes. So for me, it would be fascinating to have this kind of passive character who is no different at the end of the novel to how they are at the beginning of the novel and just kind of wanted to maintain the status quo and just be who they were. But I feel like that kind of novel, guys, for any of you listening, I feel like this is the kind of novel that needs to be handled by a master because I think it would be incredibly difficult to do if this is what you're starting out and this is going to be your your first writing project. Yeah. Well, one of my one of my favorite stories, I read it decades ago, um, but it stays with me, is Bartleby the Scrivener by Melville. And it's being narrated by somebody else. So I, so he's kind of split the, the split the difference there. And you're not fully, you're not in Bartleby's head. But at the same time, it's a story about a man whose most famous line is, I would prefer not to. And it's such a daring play, right? And now, of course, it's Melville who at this point, you know, you could say, well, okay, he says Melville. But at the time, you know, he was writing, he was not a success at the time. And he was writing this story. And it's really, I mean, the story has haunted me for, for decades because I understand how Bartleby felt. So here, here was a man the world was acting on and he was doing all he could to resist <laughs> the world acting on him. And it is interesting, though, again, that's a short story. So reading 25 pages is quite different from reading 350 pages. But anyway, I just think it's one of the most fascinating challenges. And I agree with you completely. The passive character cannot be written lightly. Real skill needs to be brought forth to make it enjoyable. And I feel like we are all that character this year because we are all, <laughs> I would prefer not for this world to be doing what it's done to us this year. And I would prefer to just, just get on with my own thing without all of this other stuff. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. 
Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word the more writers we have signed up the better the matches will be okay after stakes what's the yes. next thing we need to look at so a really nuts and bolts one um and in fact i'm going to put three together and these are the nuts and bolts questions so the first is point of view and um, i'm as an editor this is an easy one to grapple with because it's very tangible right how many points of view which ones and are they reliable so this is a a, a question a set of questions that a, re- a writer has to nail down but i think you can play with it because i think there are advantages to this way and then to this way and what you have to decide is not that there's one right answer there's there never is. The question is, for the story that you're developing, what brings it out best? What questions of point of view actually bring that story to life the best? Related to that is the question of person, right? First, third, or rarely second. So when you look at first, right, the advantages of first are pretty obvious to me. It's like, okay, immediacy. I'm getting to know this character deeply and well, but third has advantages that first doesn't have. First of all, you can split it among characters, right? Of course, you could do a multiple first person narration too, but third person gives you this this bit of remove. But a funny thing about it too is what you sacrifice in immediacy or intimacy, I should say, what you sacrifice in intimacy, I think you gain in trustworthiness. A first person narrator, I think often a writer is going to work with the fact that that character might lie to themselves and in effect, they're going to lie to you. Third person, you think, well, we're removed from that. So I can trust what I'm being told, even if I don't know everything. Again, it depends what kind of story you're trying to write, but I think that's a very important choice. In second person, 
person. I don't know. There's only a handful of novels that are second person. Um, so it's it doesn't come up a lot. Just on that. So yeah. lately I'm seeing something that seems to me like a hybrid of second and first person. So the character is speaking in the first person, but they're speaking to another character who they are addressing as you. So it's not that they're putting the reader in the place of the actor of the novel. You know, so classic second person would be you open the door, you peer around the corner, you start walking up the steps. Whereas like Caroline Kipnis's You and mm-hmm. uh, Julia Johnson, uh, her first novel was Be Frank With Me, her new one's coming out in January. And that as well is a character in the first person who is speaking to another character who they address as you. And mm-hmm. what is maintained so brilliantly there in that hybrid kind of form is the suspense in that novel as to who this you person is that they're busy addressing. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's a great example. And I, I think both of those novels, they, they kind of made the person, right? This, this tool that they had, they kind of made it the whole concept of the novel, right? I mean, they, they're working, they're, they're drawing suspense out of their choice of person, which again, a lot of writers kind of pass by this question like, oh, there's a third person novel. But no, it's a really big question. So much can be won or lost on it. Those are really good examples. The other nuts and bolts. Yeah, that's great. So the last one that goes with that is um, tense. Okay. And so you have past, present, or I suppose kind of like second person, like you could find novels that are future, I suppose. But but past and present, again, clear advantages um, to each, right? So past, there is perspective. We can look back at something and say, I thought this, I felt that. You know, you can really fill out those emotions. But what you're giving up is immediacy, right? Things have already happened and I'm telling you this story. So unless it's Sunset Boulevard or American Beauty. So American yeah. Beauty starts with this line. My name is Lester Burnham. I'm 47 years old and I'll be dead in less than a year. It's great. It's great. But it's kind of being written in a way where a dead person is narrating a, a story. And that's a high concept thing. Sunset Boulevard had a similar <clears throat> approach. But usually we're choosing between past and present and past has this perspective, which is wonderful, but it gives away some of the immediacy. Present embrace embraces the immediacy. This is happening right now, which means even I telling you the story don't know what's going to happen next. However, now there's probably a lack of perspective. And sometimes that can be not a great feel, can make a novel feel kind of thin. I think it's a good fit for a suspense story. I think it's less of a good fit for something that is more literary and meant to be more reflective. So again, seems an obvious choice, but I don't think it is. I think it's one that should be thought through and decided on early by the writer. And I think there's a lot that could be gained from it, or if it's played wrong, that can be lost. And uh, most people tend to just go to the past tense. This seems to be a natural setting. If I'm judging by my students, they just go to the past tense. And then when you say to them, you know, this would be so much more immediate if we did it in um, the present tense, then they do that. But I find that that is the tense in which authors struggle the most because it's not one that they're comfortable with. And it's not one that they're used to. And keep in mind as well, that if you are right, something in the past tense, but there's a lot of inner monologue that your character is giving to the reader. All inner monologue should be in the present tense because that's that character's thoughts in that moment, even if the rest is past tense. So these are things that you need to come to grips with very early on so that you're not tense shifting all the way through the novel. And present tense can probably be the toughest, but also one of the most rewarding if you do nail that. So that's just an aside. Okay, moving on from there. Yes. So um, another thing I thought a lot about is foreshadowing. You know, we we know it when we see it and we like, you know, we like the effect of it. But I think some writers don't realize that you can very intentionally choose to do this. 
you can drop a little bit of a hint of something that's to come. Sometimes it's extremely subtle, something that the reader kind of is picking up without even realizing they're picking it up. And then it circles back around. But sometimes it's much more overt, like the first scene of a novel could be something that actually takes place 75% of the way through the novel, right? So now we've got this sense of something that's going to come, but we have to get there. I remember many years ago reading One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And, you know, you start with this very voicey, you know, very rich and disorienting uh, scene. And at the end of like, just the just the opening scene is like three pages into the novel. It ends with, you know, this is something I'm paraphrasing, but something like, you know, this is how I remember it, even if it's not true. So he tells you right at the beginning, like, I am not reliable at all. So everything you read at thereafter shouldn't be trusted. And then you forget about it and you move on, but it's there. And then you get to the end and you realize, ah, the whole time, you know, it's been this kind of fever dream of an event and maybe none of it was to be believed. But I think foreshadowing of, of all shapes and sizes is really useful. And it's, it's one of the most clear and important tools to make a reader look ahead to what's to come. And sometimes foreshadowing can be really blatant. So for example, in my first novel, I think I ended my first chapter with little did I realize that within three days, the entire landscape of my life would change. So there the reader had it immediately knowing within three days, all kinds of stuff was going to be happening to this character. But of course, when you're doing that kind of foreshadowing, that's when you need to be writing in the past tense, because otherwise the character wouldn't know that unless they were psychic. So these are all things in terms of what Mark's saying is so important in terms of picking all of that up front to choose like the vehicle that's best going to serve the story. So if you want a story that's going to have a lot of foreshadowing, etc., then past tense is probably the way you want to go, or you want a third person omniscient narrator who knows things that are going to unfold that the character themselves doesn't know. What's next, Mark? Okay, next is duration. The actual amount of time that passes while a story transpires. And I think that it's, um, this is also one that can be overlooked, but, but it really matters. Again, if your goal is maximum suspense, then I suggest you constrain it as much as possible. What's the shortest amount of time, right? However, if you're writing an epic historical novel, like I just, I'm publishing a novel that's coming up in April or actually late March. And most of this author's stories in her career so far have, have taken place in a very constrained time frame, a few days or a few weeks, something like that. This one takes place ultimately over the course of 20 years. It's an entirely different kind of story. And it required all new skill, you know, like skills of hers to pull it off, but she did. And it's wonderful. But that 20 20-year period was right for the kind of story she's telling, a rich historical epic. But for most suspense stories or, or rom-coms, well, I shouldn't say rom-com because you could kind of, you could stretch it. But even then, the point is at the outset, ask yourself, how much time should pass while the story is transpiring to feel right? You don't want the reader to feel exhausted, but you don't, also don't want them to feel cheated that it's already over. Right. And that was a mistake. Again, I made as my first novel. Uh, <laughs> the first draft spanned four decades. And when we got all the rejections from editors, they said, you have been overly ambitious, pick one period of time. And of course, the book then became one year and three months as opposed to four decades. And like you say, some stories are amazing told over an extended period of time. Claire Lombardo wrote The Most Fun We Ever Had, which is this kind of multi-character family saga. And that book was just such a page turner, even though it, it happened over this extended period of time. But then you have a book like If No One Speaks of Remarkable Things, and that entire book takes place over the space of a few hours and very literary work. And I wouldn't have said that that was a page turner, but still extremely, extremely compelling. Okay, what next? Next up is structure itself. And there, there are some obvious examples, some well-known examples. You know, you have the hero's journey, you have 
Freitag's triangle. You have all these different ways of looking at it. But essentially, what I think a writer should think about as they're outlining a story, if that's their style, or if they're just dreaming it up, if that's their style, how does the story essentially rise? So you might go to the a very typical outline of structure, or you might do something a bit more creative. Either way, in one way or another, the story has to develop. And so how is it developing? And then when is it hitting its kind of moment? It's, you know, it's a moment of climax. And when is it kind of, how is it kind of coming down? I think there are some novels where it's right. So I mentioned, for example, this, this historical epic that needed a longer wind down than some other novels, because you've, you've had so much going on and so many different characters and events that when it was done, if it had ended, and three pages later, the book's over. It would have felt, you know, felt very wrong to the reader. So this is a slow wind down. Other books, they need to get almost to the exact last page, hit the climax, and then it's over, right? So you've got to feel that out. And I think you want the reader to never feel bored, but you want them to feel satisfied. And I think structure is an important part of the, the question of how you achieve that. The other thing I think that's interesting about structure, often I see novels where the climax actually comes too late. And I don't mean to say that we want this elongated epilogue. But what I do mean to say is often the most interesting things that happen in a novel are the things that happen after the point of high drama. Because really now the characters are revealed. And what are they going to do once they're revealed? That is interesting to the reader. Yes, you don't want it to go on forever, but I think you owe it to the reader to show who that character is after this moment of high drama has kind of stripped them bare. And so I, I think some novels miss that chance and we're kind of like, they survived. And so we move on and it's like, well, no, now I'm with them and I've been through this with them. Now who are they? You were talking about arc and I think that's a, an important part of arc. I think that middles are the trickiest but for, for writers. And I think especially emerging writers try and hang on to these golden nuggets too late. They want to include them as these big aha moments near the end of the novel. And I say to my students, look at the three act structure because it's probably the simplest structural tool that you have as a writer. And you kind of have these pillars of no return. You know, the first 25% of the novel is your first act, but not in all books, because if you look at the Hunger Games, I think chapter one and chapter two were the first act of that novel. And then you were thrust into the point of no return as Katniss then just had to dive into it. So some novels will take that 25% to build up to that point where this character is revealed or they're thrust into the rest of the story. But then you've got 50% of the middle, guys. So don't forget that. You need to keep the reader invested for that 50% of the middle so that they will be at the end where you have this amazing reveal. So I definitely agree on uh, with Mark on, on that point. Um, and I think actually, I think I think the Hunger Games. Imagine that novel having dragged out its opening for 50, 70 pages. It's a very different reading experience. And just on that, I mean, she could have done that because she could have gone, well, the readers don't really know this world. And she could have focused a lot there on world building and all kinds of stuff. But again, you don't need to understand this world to know that if you're this teenage girl and your young sister is going to have to fight to the death, you don't need to know much about the world. You just need to know that this is something awful. And if this was your sister, you'd want to jump in and you would want to try and protect her as well. And that's what she got right so brilliantly that she just got us in two chapters so on board with this character and the whole world. Totally agree. Um, plus also, she also used other things we've already talked about, which is a very immediate and very intimate uh, narration, which helped her achieve those goals so quickly. So my ninth point is unanswered questions. And this goes to a lot of what you've already been saying, but I think it is important even if you're giving us some knowledge about this character that we can relate to, if you've told us everything, we're done, right? We don't want to know everything. 
You know, we want to want to know everything. And I think that you've got to find those questions about your character or perhaps concept or setting, but but character is usually where it comes from, that you can withhold from us without cheapening the experience. I'm not saying lie to the reader, right? It's just that you don't have to fill in every blank. You think about getting to know somebody in life. You think about dating somebody, you know, when you're when you're young. And for months, you could be in this space of not really knowing so many important things about them. And you want to, you want to, you want to. And then later, you know, say you you stay together and say you get married, those gaps become filled in and you have new challenges as a couple, but it's no longer the getting to know each other. It's no longer the searching for answers. There's a reason why, you know, dating is fun. I mean, it's because, you know, by why it's interesting, why it engages us. So I think you want to do that with the characters in your novels. You want to make sure there are, there are things we don't know about them, even if they've been hinted at. So unanswered questions, I think is an important thing. I'm generally a believer. It, every novel is unique, but I'm generally a believer that plot is the way to get the reader into the backstory. I think if you try to do backstory ahead of plot, you've made a mistake. I think it becomes complicated because you're getting information, you're getting exposition without necessarily knowing why you care. And I think it's more important that the reader care first. You were saying some of this earlier is that you can kind of quickly get us into the scene so that we care about this character. And after you've won that battle, then I think you can you can lay out some more information. I think one of the things that an editor is always thinking about is attention span. And again, it varies by novel. But I think the important thing is to get on the page as soon as you can, portrait of a character that is engaging and sympathetic, but I don't think it has to be full. I'll just put my belief out there that backstory matters. I think telling it efficiently is usually the right way to go. And I think it's best told if you've already found a way to get the reader moving through the story. Last one is twists. So again, when you see it on the page, it seems obvious. Oh yes, this is a twisty novel, but good twists don't happen by accident. And I think the thing really is providing the reader with what they need so that when and you deliver a twist, it is both surprising and it feels real, right? So bit of a spoiler, but you think of something like Gone Girl, right? And you're reading this novel and you're about halfway through and you're like, I got it. This is, this is cool. I like this. And this is what kind of novel it is. And it's like, boom, perfect, you know, 180 degree turn. You're like, oh, it's that kind of story. And one of the things I love about that book is that that book is about a twisted marriage. And I like how for half the book, I'm pretty much totally sympathetic to this one character. Once she's revealed to be psychotic, I'm like, so what does that say about me? Because I totally got her. But I think that a twist like that can't happen by accident. A writer can't just be like, oh, and then it's this because you can do that but probably it's going to come off as so thin and, and cheap, you know, a, a gimmick that the readers can be like, what? That doesn't make any sense. And that's not satisfying. So anyway, when you're outlining your novel, I think it is important for a writer to think about how will I surprise the reader? And yes, when you're looking at a suspense novel or a mystery, we're talking about actual twists, like you thought it was a good guy, it's a bad guy, et cetera, fine. But you can think of a historical epic. You can think about a, a romantic comedy. You can think about a literary novel. In any of those novels, I would hope there are moments where a reader is genuinely and deeply surprised about the direction of a character or the direction of a story or an echo of something from earlier that you didn't see coming. I think all of those things are important. You know, I can think of, of books that I read when I was young. Uh, for some reason, a separate piece just popped into my head. I don't know why, but, but books that I read when I was young. And I think to a large degree, one of the very few things that'll stay with me about a novel is when it genuinely surprised me. There's a psychological thing. Humans are fundamentally afraid of two things, loud noise and a loss of support. And I feel like a twist is a loss of support. You have come to rest on something. You're like, well, I know this is true. And then boom, 
it's not. And as a reader, you're left sitting there being like, I can't believe I invested so much in this story that it, I mean, I'm my heart hurts from this thing that doesn't exist, but that's what happens to us. So I think it is important when you're outlining or dreaming up a novel to think about at what point in this novel can I achieve surprise? Somebody who did that phenomenally well is Claire, yeah, Claire McElroy. I let you go. I remember it won all of these awards. It beat out, um, you know, J.K. Rowling as Robert Galbraith. And I read the book and I was getting about to the middle of the book. And I was like, I don't understand what all the fuss is about with this book. I'm going to give up this book. And then boom, I was hit with the twist. I don't think I've ever seen a twist like that in any kind of novel. It just ripped the foundations out from under me and made me go back and reread everything because it was just so utterly brilliant. But she gave us enough clues that we should have picked it up. And I consider myself a savvy reader and I didn't pick it up. I read that book on a vacation and I remember I was in bed about halfway through the novel. I think it's halfway. And my wife was asleep next to me and I just had a reading light on and I'm trying to be, you know, super turning the pages quietly. And all of a sudden I'm like, (gasps) she wakes up. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was sorry. But it was, and then the other thing about that novel, it's a really good novel to pick for, for this topic. It doesn't just have one. There's actually three. And I, I remember the third one feeling like, I don't know, but I remember the first two of the twists just being so hearty and so, so kind of satisfying, like, oh, wow. Okay. So this, this story is doing this now. And it was great. And that's exactly why that book has stayed with me. So yeah, I think I think it's a really important thing. And I think it's a fundamental thing to humans and how they receive story. They don't want to see it all coming. Yes, we all take pride when we're like, ah, ha, ha, I knew it. Uh, yes. But at the same time, if you if you knew everything that was coming, wouldn't you give up on fiction? I mean, what would be the point? So I think twists are on whatever level and whatever style they are. I think they're important and I think they can be extremely satisfying. And I think why twists like that are so satisfying is because when you go back and reread it, it's the same as watching the movie The Sixth Sense. You're like, oh my God, I should have seen this. Of course the guy's dead. Like, how did I not see this? And I think it speaks to writing advice that Chekhov gave. He said, if you're going to fire a pistol in the second act, you had to have put it on the table or put it on the wall in the first act. And that's the thing. So that when these twists and turns happen, the really savvy reader will go, oh my God, yes, because you hinted at this on this page and therefore I should have seen it coming as opposed to I've read some psychological thrillers lately where suddenly in the third act we it gets revealed that this person actually had a child 20 years ago that was never mentioned there's been no clue of it and suddenly that is now the twist and I always feel so robbed when that happens because it's it needs to feel something that's plausible and it needs to be something that you kind of want to smack yourself and go I should have been paying better attention. I completely agree and there's something else that goes along with that. I Often when I'm talking with an author, when we're working on something like this, I'll talk about sleight of hand. It's like a magic trick. When you think of a magician, they're going to essentially, if you break it down, they're going to pull a handkerchief out of their pocket. There is nothing more boring that a human could do than pull a handkerchief out of their pocket. But if they have you looking over here off to the left by three feet because they have some firecracker in their hand and you don't see them, grab the handkerchief. Now it's interesting because you're like, how did I miss that? I mean, I'm, I'm sitting right here. So I often talk about the sleight of hand and the, the trick to me about the sleight of hand, the trick to the twist is not that you just hide something. Anybody could just hide it. The point is you tuck it away in a way where it seems to have been dealt with properly. It seems to have its own purpose before its actual purpose is revealed. That way the reader can be like, okay, I got that. Like if you're saying, you know, it's revealed that they have a child 75% of the way through the novel. But if we have said they lost lost a child, right? And 20, this is a grief they have lived with. And 
now they've moved on a little bit and they live their life. Now you can be like, oh, okay, that's part of the character's story. I understand that. Then when it's revealed, now you're like, oh, you know, something else is really going on. But it's important that the writer successfully tuck that knowledge away before the twist. I think that's that's when the twist works. Mark, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. I hope this is not going to be our only discussion. I hope we could get together every two months or so and tackle <laughs> some other form of some other part of craft. I will be around. And as far as we can tell, I'm literally not going anywhere. So, uh, <laughs> so you just let me know. But, but listen, thank you. This was wonderful. Great time. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. 
And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.